The Peter Switzer Show is brought to you by The Switzer Report. Sign up today at switzerreport.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and this is our best of collection. And we've put them into various groups, food and drink, the best of retail and the best of tech and also a best of sport as well. Now, our first one is the best of food and drink and we've got Stuart Gregor, the founder of Four Pillars Gin, Luke Mangan, that fantastic celebrity chef who doesn't like to be called celebrity chef because he's actually a serial entrepreneur and Ronnie Khan of Oz a woman who has turned food we throw out into something that really is helping the down and out. That's the show for this week. Let's kick off with Stu Gregor. We've built a business that really we established only seven years ago in the Yarra Valley. We were making we were making gin out the back of a mate's winery um, in Warrandyte, which if, if anyone is listening is from Melbourne knows that only a real estate agent could call Warrandyte the Yarra Valley. It really is just the outer suburbs of Melbourne. And if you stood on top of one of the tanks, you could see the Yarra Valley. But um, we started making gin there in, at, right at the end of 2013. And um, interesting, just to give you a sense of how many what, what's going on in the gin industry in Australia, when we started, we reckon there were 10 people, 10 distilleries seriously making gin in Australia, and we reckon now there's more than 200. So we were lucky, and I think we got in right at the, at the, at the, at the, at the crest of the, at the, at the start of the wave, mm. I suppose, of, of, of this gin boom that is not just happening in Australia, but all over the world. And, um, yeah, we've positioned ourselves pretty well, pretty well now, but there's a lot to do. Most yeah. of us have lost a lot of customers in the last three months. We've got a lot of, a lot of business to make up, mm. um, from, you know, March onwards. So, Stu, uh, let me sort of sketch your history because, you know, as some some great business builders have said, that it took something like twenty years to be an overnight success because it it sounds like an overnight success with you know four pillars. But you've you've been in the industry for a long time, um, and I guess you could take me back how long? Because uh, at the start of your um, introduction to the the wine and and liquor industry, just ahead of it. Yeah. You were a long-haired, scary person in West, in Westminster Abbey. In Westminster Abbey, I yeah. knew that was going to come up. <laughs> well, because we, guys, we yeah, I should explain explain to everybody what I'm talking about. I was, um, yeah. So in early in, in the early '90s, so having left left school in the late '80s, I became a journalist actually, and I spent five years at News Corp um, writing everything from. Um, from sports and politics to music and, and and everything in between, and then decided to um, you know, do the backpack thing around around Europe. And I was actually walking. I was I was destitute. <laughs> I was literally skint, walking through um, Westminster Abbey as a as a, as a backpacker in, in in the early nineties, probably in my early twenties. Mm. And lo and behold, would I see my former economics teacher and his family on their you know Griswold family tour <laughs> of Europe? Yeah, and they took. And I did. I had. A, I had a, a jacket, that, a long jacket that I had bought from like an op shop for five. Yeah, an army jacket, over like and a great I had coat. An army jacket. Mm. <laughs> and they took pity on me. And I still remember you took me to Planet Hollywood for lunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was, but yeah, that started. I guess. I, I guess that actual trip. I ended up living in France for a while then because I thought that I might want to want to be a, a chef or a cook. But I discovered wine. Actually, I was living just out of a, a little town called Chablis, where they make very famous white wine. Mm. Um, and I soon sort of met some, some people in the wine industry, and that's where I, 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 I actually, of all the bizarre places, I found out in Burgundy, which is where Chablis is, that I could I could go back to Australia and study at a, at a at Roseworthy College, which is now part of the University of Adelaide. It's a, it's a famous old agricultural college where everyone learned how to make wine or do wine business and wine marketing. Um, right back from the from the fifties, all of the great Australian winemakers all went through Roseworthy, and I thought, well, that's a great idea. I could move to the Barossa and and learn about the wine industry, and I and I actually I was lucky enough to get in, and I, I, I soon realised after I'd been there for six weeks, it wasn't even remotely difficult to get in. Um, I thought I'd achieved something enormous by by getting in, but basically they took pretty much anyone. Um, and yeah, I started learning a bit about wine and a bit about the business side of wine, and and I used my journalism skills a little bit, I suppose. And then um, for the next for ten years after I left Roseworthy, I, I lived in Melbourne, where I was working for. Uh, some big wineries, you know, Mildara Black, 
So that's now become Treasury Wine Estate, essentially, so the biggest wine business in the country where I was effectively their PR manager, I suppose, doing wine education and teaching both the sales reps and the, and the customers about all of the, about all of the wines while mm. still writing about wine, wrote half a dozen wine guides and then set up my own business, which was Liquid Ideas, which is basically just giving advice to wineries and breweries and subsequently travel companies and hospitality venues um, about how to you know, promote themselves. You know, I have, I've always had a, I, I don't think it would be unfair to say, Peter, that I've had a, um, I've had a fairly, you know, um, uh, I've had a reasonable crack at talking underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, uh, I've, I've always had a good, a good way, I suppose, of promoting, promoting both myself and my clients. So, um, that, that, that was a business that still exists today. And that's, in, my, in, my in, wife's now heavily involved in that business. In fact, I was talking to one of the, the, the most famous wine experts in the country who will not be named, uh, who I told I was going to be interviewing you today. And he said, um, Great bloke, but you never ever want to share a stage with him because he eats the microphone. So the poor person has had to share a stage with you at some point in his life and probably walked off the stage and say, did anyone know I was there? Anyway, yes. <laughs> anyway, but uh, you, you sped through a part of the story I want to actually focus on because when you were at that college, you actually met someone who was actually, I think, very uh, instrumental in – helping you be even better at business than you would have been without it. So why don't you tell us that story as well? <laughs> I suspect you're talking about my wife. Oh, well, no, well, two, well I, I think you've had two women because I think, you know, your wife Polly has is is been very important because, you, you know, you would have been basically a drunk who had a business. Um, yeah, yeah. So Polly's certainly made Sally, sure. Yeah. Sally, sorry. Polly. One of your ex-girlfriends, wasn't it, Polly? It uh, is one of my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, my memory goes back too far. Yes. Sally will kill me. But but going, you know, so Sally's always been a bit like more in, in my life, you know, that, that, that kind of anchor, that foundation that has made yeah. what you're capable of doing you know, come to fruition. But, but also you had a business partner who used yeah. to work at McDonald's uh, as, a, as a young woman, and, and she was also great to bring discipline and systems into the crazy world of Stuart Gregor. Yeah, look, Angie, so it's Angie Bradbury, who mm. I founded Liquid Ideas with. Um, we actually met when we were both doing our masters together. So we were doing a master's in marketing at the, at the Melbourne Business School. Yeah, okay. And I would, um, she's a, uh, she's a, a dynamo. She's currently the chair of uh, Wine Victoria. She's been running a, 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 an incredible business called Big and Fish up until just recently, and is probably going to sit on a few boards and probably consult to, to a bunch of businesses. And yeah, look, Angie was um, she she had she'd been to McDonald's. She'd been she was then working for Spotless at the time for Ron Evans' uh, incredible business Spotless that was at the time you know or still is we are ruling a lot of hospitality and 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 business across Victoria, very big business in Melbourne. Um, and, and, you know, I always say that, you know, I, I would never have got where I am today without either of them, without either Angie or Sally. But Angie in particular, from a business perspective, helped us create Liquid Ideas, which was a, an idea of mine. You know, I was always good at the big picture and the ideas and the, and the talk and all that sort of stuff. But someone who could come in and actually structure and, and frame a, a, a real business was, was my only hope of survival and, and success. And, yeah, look, Ange uh, has been a huge part of my my you know modest success, I suppose. And she, you know, for ten years we were working closely together. I mean, we we had a, a reunion for twenty years of Liquid Ideas only in February, just literally the week or two before um, before Victoria got shut down. Like it was actually the, the the last week of February. We all had a drink with some of our great ex employees, and and you know the great thing is that Liquid Ideas has started so many careers in either in the wine industry or beer industry or, or, or corporate communications. Um, you know, we've got such a great alumni of, of people who've come through that, including, funnily enough, two of the senior people at Lion. So that may have helped me get my um, – they may have finally paid me back. <laughs> um, that may have helped us get our deal through um, in, in March last year. So, yeah, I mean, anyone who wants to start a business, make sure you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but – It's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But sure, also at that time, Beth, you and Angie – luckily bumped into a lady by the name of Leslie Ann Grimaldi, uh, who was your business coach, who later became yep. my business coach. And uh, that was an important part 
to have those, that objective set of eyes from someone like uh, Leslie Ann, wasn't it? Well, it's important because if you remember that she was she was a business coach, but she'd actually run a business that was not dissimilar to the one we'd set up. So, God, we were lucky. Yeah. I mean, mm. I think sometimes in business you make your own luck, but that, but sometimes you are just kissed, kissed by an angel. And I think one of the – someone I literally just did a, came off to just doing a little interview about uh, half an hour ago, and someone said, God, how did you get so lucky to open this bar a week that bars reopened in New South Wales. And I said, frankly, I would love to tell you that that was some kind of um, genius, but that was just sheer, unadulterated good fortune. And I think with, with Leslie Ann, if we go back into the, you know, back into the vault, you know, 20 plus years ago, she was not only an outstanding business coach, but she'd actually been in a business that was marketing and PR for mm. wine companies. So we had the, we had the added advantage of having a business coach who not only um, knew a lot about how to get a startup business going, um, but she also knew the categories that that we were directly involved in. And you know what, she helped us get some clients too. I'm absolutely certain of that. So, mm. um, you know, it, it, it is you know the business journey is there's an enormous number of people along the way who start, who do incredible things to help you out. And I think it's really important never to forget that. It's um, Sometimes, you know, you, you said there yourself that, you know, an overnight sensation is 20 years in the making. It is. And I think I think anyone in, in, in business or in any other endeavor in life, you know, you need to always step back. When people are just busy patting you on the shoulder and telling you you've made heaps of money or whatever else it might be, that there's, there, were, there were lots of turns and twists where you might have gone the wrong direction, but there was somebody smarter than you who pulled you back into line and, and straightened you up and got you heading back in the right direction. And I think that, you know, never, never, never forget that you're, you're, you know, only, you know, but, but for the good grace of others, mm. you are where you are today. Yeah. Um, Stuart, some that's pe- about as philosophical as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm glad I'm interviewing, interviewing you early in the day. But, yeah, as I say, some, yeah. some people might have thought you, you know, drunk your way to business success, and you have, but, but you also – had, as you pointed out, very good people around you. Uh, when you were with the business coach, you know, um, you, know you, you had someone like Angie who would actually do the homework for you, uh, and you've always done that even when you were a school student. You always had people <laughs> helping you do your homework. But, but the same thing, you're driven and you're focused, and that was a very important uh, ingredient to, to your success because it hasn't always been flying high, has it? No, no. I mean, there are times, you know, when when you've, you've thought, you know, well, there are times in any small business, particularly in that first, I don't know, five to seven years when you think you might go under. You know, you really don't think, you know, you don't pay yourself. Um, you're, you're scratching around trying to find any, you know, any bit of business that you can do. You'll literally take any client, you know, and, and you may have entered the business with some ideals about the sorts of people you'll work with and the, and the types of work you'll do. Um you throw a lot of that out of the window just to survive, you know. It's um, and it's even 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 now as we have reset our business here, you know, twenty years on, you know, none of us could have predicted that we would lose forty percent of our business overnight. I mean, the fastest growing part of our popular business was global travel retail, which is a duty free market. Yeah, yeah. And, and in 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 in, in, in January this year, we were looking at having the you know uh, the most incredible year in duty free. Uh, not just in Australia, we were expanding to Changi and to Hong Kong Airport, and you know we were we were planning to get into Heathrow and all the all the international airports where spirit buying is a really big part of, of, mm. of the airport experience. That is now currently sitting at zero, and mm. that would have been twenty percent of our business uh, had we gone on as we were in January this year. Um, so you know we got to find somewhere else to replace that twenty percent of the business, and you know, and it's not all going to be six weeks of hand sanitizer sales, and and you can't make it all up through Dan Murphy. So you know we've had to make some really tough decisions in the last, uh, even in the last six weeks, about how can we get all of our budget back down, how can we get all of our costs back down. Um, you know we've been retooling this business almost weekly during. COVID, as has everyone in every industry. I mean, it's, it's funny because I also, you know, I own half a travel business with my sister and even when, even the worst of times in our gin business at the moment, it's not even remotely as close to how bad the travel industry is at the moment. I mean, it's, it's been decimated and, you know, they can't, and 
you know, even though Alan Joyce was speaking the truth last week when he said, you know, Qantas don't really expect to be flying in any reasonable amount until July next year, that's just, that is a dagger through a, a travel agent who's trying desperately to convince people that they should book trips in, you know, May next year. Mm. Um, so it's a really, no matter, you know, there's always, in life, I think there's always someone doing a bit better than you and there's always someone doing a little bit harder than you and there's plenty of people who are doing it tougher than, than us right now. Yeah. And uh, I feel just for tourism and travel and hospitality. I mean, you know, we've got so many mates who still aren't reopening their restaurants and bars and we just hope, you know, you don't know what's going on in the background but hopefully they've got reasonable landlords and hopefully they haven't lost all of their staff and, uh, you know, I, I just hope a lot of those great venues are going to reopen. Mm. You know, because we need them. The culture needs them. You know, we need them as, you know, you don't want to live in a city where there's not many good bars and fun restaurants. I mean, I was talking to New York, um, and they're talking about a third of all bars in New York never reopening. Gee. I mean, that, that's a, that, that, New York's not going to feel like New York without all of those bars mm. on every corner. That's, that's its DNA. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, uh, I don't think anyone quite realizes where we're going to end up coming out of this. But I think a lot of the, a lot of our industries, or a lot of the industries that we love, are going to look very different in a year's time than they than they did in March. Stewie, um, take me back to when you first went into making wine. I think we actually had a, a, a restaurant meal in uh, one of the laneways of Melbourne when you started. Was it Donnie Mac? Was your first foray into <laughs> making stuff, and it's, that's was, part it was, of your name, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's Donny Good Mac. So oh. it was Donny, which is me, because I'm Donald Stu, uh, Donald Stewart Gregor. Good was Kate Goodman, who was a, who, who who was, and he is a, an incredibly talented winemaker. Um, and Mac was Cameron McKenzie. He's actually ended up being the guy that I'm in business at Four Pillars with, mm. along with um, Matt Jones, who's our third co-founder. But um, yeah, we started with Donny Good Mac because one of the things that I think has driven the, maybe the success of Four Pillars, but also me, me personally, is that I've never always just wanted to be the guy watching other people do things, you know, and it was, whilst we were always, <clears throat> at that stage, I'd um, worked for a few wine businesses and, you know, was, had done had written some books and judged some wine shows. I'd never actually owned my own wine label, if you like, you know, where I got to play a part in what we actually released and, and while Kate was the winemaker per se, at least I was able to get involved in the in the in the in the blending and the tasting and what it should look like, and that was a really important thing for us because we started that. Um, I vividly remember we picked the first fruit for that exactly one week before I got married in 2002, and we picked the wrong. I shouldn't ever be admitting this, but these are the mistakes you make that you can laugh about 20 years later. It was 2002. We actually picked the fruit on April the 13th. That was two weeks before my wedding. And we thought we were picking Shiraz off a mate's vineyard. Turned out we were picking a different grape variety entirely called Cabernet Franc. Um, <clears throat> when we bottled it as Shiraz, we always thought it tasted a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> it, was only, it was only later when we asked him, you know, we picked rows four, five, and six or whatever the numbers were. And he said, what, why, why did you pick them? You were meant to pick eight, nine, and ten, or whatever, because this mate of ours had allowed us to pick some fruit in, in his vineyard. Yeah. And we said, oh, well, they were the ones that were closest to the road or, you know, <laughs> or our buckets some or whatever. Some stupid <laughs> analysis, yeah. <laughs> so, and he said, yeah, but that wasn't Shiraz, mate. That was Cabernet Franc. And we went, ah, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's why it didn't taste like Shiraz. So we made a few mistakes, but we had such a good time making that wine for five or six years, and it led us. It did a couple of things because then we, uh, uh, Cameron and I went on with, with another mate of ours and, and started making some wine called The Dirty Three, which was based on three of us, a guy called Marcus Satchel, who is currently making the very best wines in South Gippsland. So down on the way to Phillip Island, mm. it's still called Dirty Three, and their wines are as good as anything coming out of Victoria right now. So if anyone wants to tip into a hot new wine label, they should get a little bit of Dirty Three. Mm. Um, and then that was the last step before we... We, we left into four pillars and the things that we realized that we needed to do was again we needed to surround ourselves with smarter people and that's where Matt Jones came in because while Cameron was going to be great on the production and I was probably going to be great on the talk and the chat and the PR and, and all that, that sort of thing we still needed someone to pull it all together a bit like an Angie Bradbury back from you know 2000 and, mm. and Matt's the guy who was able to you know give our idea some structure you know, build some scaffolding around our, you know, our, our, our ideas of what we could do with gin and what we could do with 
um, you know, building a beautiful distillery in the Yarra Valley and all that sort of stuff. So, but Stuart, um, again, but Stuart, how did you get out of wine and into gin? What made you think, apart from brilliance and perceiving where the world would be going, what made you think that gin would work? Well, to be honest, it was nothing about where the world was going. It was God. I was being hard. facetious then. I was being facetious <laughs> when I said that. But go on. <laughs> we, a, there was a couple of motivating factors. One is that wine was just getting too hard for us. It was, mm. I mean, the climate, I realise the climate was stuff. There were just too many wine brands on the market. And in fact, we were sitting drinking gin and tonics, the three of us from. from from Donnie Goodmack, so me and Kate and um, Cameron were actually drinking gin and tonic. We used to drink a lot of gin. And we actually thought, um, why is tonic so crap? This is before the, the tonic revolution, if you like, where there's now Fever Tree and Strange Love and all these cool tonic brands. When we were, you know, 15 years ago, there was only Schweppes tonic. It was literally the only product. And we thought, maybe we should make tonics to make our gin and tonics better. And honestly, it was one day later when we realised we don't know how to make tonics. We know nothing about soft drinks and how to make that. But what about gin? You know, gin could be good. We could use all of you know some of our understanding of wine and flavour and botanicals, and we could probably make some spirit. Um, and that was pretty much where it came from. Four Pillars, the name, just came essentially out of a, a, one of our similar drinking. We, we used to have a, 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 a hilarious drinking game where it was called the Four Pillars of Humanity. So we basically said, well, why don't we just call it Four Pillars? That sounds like a good name for a, for a gin brand. No real science or marketing research went into that. And then um, I said to Cameron, well, you know, you're going to have to make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, he got a glass he, he got a glass still, which he had to register with the local coppers because I think they thought he was making crystal meth for a while. <laughs> and um, he just started distilling and distilling and distilling individual botanicals and occasionally I would go down. So he was doing this, as I said, in Warren, died on the edge of the Yarra. I was, um, by this stage, I was living back in Sydney and I would go down and we would taste all these individual components. But he's the, he's the one who designed and came up with the, with the recipe of our original rare dry gin, which is still our most important and biggest selling gin. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we, it was like, well, are we going to do this as we did our wine brand, you know, which was a, a bit of, fun on the side or are we going to go in and do this properly and we both agreed that we should do it properly so we went to the you know we went to a lot of our mates and and and, and took money from them you know in, in several mm-hmm. circumstances unconscionably after a big day at the races but we you know we we have no shame mm-hmm. um and we we got you know we, we remortgaged our own houses we you know so we ended up raising you know close to a million bucks which Meant that we could do it properly. We could buy the proper steel from Germany from the from the from the steel manufacturer we knew was the best in the world. But it was going to cost a couple of hundred grand to get this steel rather than get a cheap, you know, facsimile of it made in China or get someone to knock it up in the back of their shed in Tassie or something like that. Mm. So we knew we could, you know, we knew we could afford the best steels. We knew we could afford great, you know, photography and design and ingredients. Um, and then, you know, and then we. We, we launched that first couple of gins on Possible, you know, like an online, you know, like a, a crowdfunding site. And and when it sold out in three days, I, I still remember literally sitting in bed, you know, scrolling through the, the site and every 10 seconds, another bottle had been sold. And I remember sitting there in bed one night going, God, you know, there's, there's a market for this. This, 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 this could bloody work. Um and that was the end of 2013, and you know, seven years on, you know, we've reasonably well established now in the Australian market, and and um, I, I think we'll be pretty well established internationally, COVID COVID dependent over the next two or three years as well. Sue, obviously, marketing alcoholic products has been your strength. So, what do you think grabbed the attention of that um, the, the people who are on that site? That meant that they were, it was going out the door at the rate of knots. What what marketing, you know, attention seeking thing did you do apart from the name? What else did you do to make people say, "Shit, we we, we should buy this"? Well, I think you've got to do. I, I think you've got to sell a really credible story. I mean, I think in the um, what what we did is we we. We made it look really beautiful. We convinced people because, uh, to be perfectly honest, not a person in that first batch of uh, you know of four hundred and fifty bottles, no one had even ever tasted it, and that's what surprised us the most is that they were buying this 
mm. because either they trust they trusted the people behind it, and I think it was really important that we sold them a story that these two guys weren't just clowns who had never made a who 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 had come out of being um, you know in finance or in the in, in, you know working for a, a you know working for the post office or anything else, but they've got a background in the booze industry. They know what they're doing. The packaging looked great. You know, we, we were able to sell them a story around you know using some native Aussie botanicals. Um, so and then and then Matt Jones was able to make it all look beautiful and sound intelligent. Um, mm-hmm. And I think people, you know, ever since that day, that, that you know, back in 2013, we've we've made we've done the same thing. The key to Four Pillars success is first and foremost that the gin is really, really, really good. Uh, you know, all my marketing bullshit and all of all of our pretty um, posters and everything else don't matter anything if people taste the booze and don't like it. Mm. Um, and, you know, we have not yet touched wood. Oh, maybe one. <laughs> I was going to say, we've not yet made a dud gin. There is one gin back in our deep dark past that all of us are, you know, are questioning why we ever made it. But anyway, that that, that particular line no longer exists. Mm. But, um, you know, the, the gin has to be great. And each product, each, you know, SKU, as you'd call it, has to have a reason for being. You know, we, we, we don't just create gins for the sake of trying to get an extra, you know, an incremental sale. Each gin, you know, whether it's a bloody Shiraz gin that's steeped in Shiraz grapes or a Negroni gin that's intended to go into a Negroni, which is a really fast, fast-growing cocktail. You know, we 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 never make decisions based on oh shit, we need to chase a sale or we need to chase a, a, a number. <clears throat> and then one of the great things about being an Aussie brand is you can. You can have a ripping good time while you're doing it, you know. Too many brands, I think this is one of my frustrations with wine, if we go back to that question about why did we leave wine and go into gin. Wine can sometimes be so up itself and mm. take itself so seriously. I never felt like I really fit in. Um, I would always be the one rolling my eyes at a fancy wine show dinner when the person went up and started, you know, pontificating about the, the, the terroir of this or the particular nuance of plum and rose me and all that sort of stuff. It just wasn't my jam. I just thought, you know, shit, that's just a fun, great drink. Let's yeah. get on with it. Yeah. And you can kind of do that a bit more in spirits than, than in wine. And mm. and I think that's why I think I think we fit in better in spirits than than wine. I if you if you just take a simple example, I mean the 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 cocktail bartender, you know, who's a young, loud, fun, shaking, tattooed, you know, bearded yeah, guy yeah. or yeah, girl. You got him right. Yeah. But Versus the wine sommelier, who's the stitched up, tie, suit jacket, mm. formal, you know, clipped verbs, you know, clipped accent, all that sort of stuff. That's not my. That's not really. That wasn't really our scene. And I think, frankly, we probably pissed a few people off in wine because we used to take the piss a bit. Mm. And um, that's not to say that wine isn't great. I love. I, 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 both Cameron and myself love wine as much as anything, but. What we don't like is the pretense around it. There's yeah. a sense of formality, you know. Um, and gin gives us a, gives us much more um, freedom to do what the hell we want. Yeah. And Stu, you, you know the yellowtail story. In many ways, it succeeded in America because they worked out that Americans were intimidated by the all the palaver that goes with French wine and whatever. Yeah, look, they were. And the Yellowtail guys, the Costello family, you know, I actually, back in the, the Liquid Ideas days, we did quite a bit of work with Yellowtail. And um, what they did is strip away that and make it really easy for people to understand wine. And they treated it in many ways a bit like you would a, um, for the Americans, a bit like you might, might a cocktail or a, or, a, or, a, or a vodka. You know, mm. they, they said, right, the, the, the bright yellow one is this, the bright blue one is this. You know, they probably did what Wolf Glass did in Australia in the 70s. You know, Wolf always used to say to me, you know, Make it simple, Stuart, not complicated, you know? The black label ones. The <laughs> was that, was ones, that the your German ones. accent then, was it? You've got to be careful when you're doing any sort of accent yeah. at the moment. But I, um, that was my wolf black. He, yeah. he was incredible in, in making what was complicated simple. You know, he just loved the mnemonic of colour. Mm. Red label's a cheap one, then the yellow label, then the grey label, then black label, and then platinum, mm. you know? Um, he used to. He based it. He always used to tell me he based it on Johnny Walker. Mm. You know, the red label was the cheap one, and the black label was the fancy one. Mm. And that's what he decided to do in wine. And smart wine people um, have been doing that for, for many years. And um, that's not to say we don't love impossible to find. You know, left side of the hill Pinot Noir, uh. but um, but wine 
oftentimes is its own worst enemy because it overcomplicates everything. But it's just too bloody hard at yeah. the end of the day. I mean, I find it hard and I've been in it for 20 years. I sometimes sit at wine lists at restaurants and the guy's trying to explain stuff to me and by the end of his diatribe, I'm like, shit, I'll just have a beer, mate. <laughs> <laughs> too much. All right, so you, you started off you know, promoting at this bar, which I didn't know anything about, uh, and it's really important that you do promote a local thing because you, you've told us that your external, your export market has been affected by the coronavirus. So what have you done locally that's going to you know, help keep the, the, um, the till ticking over? Look, so in Surrey, so we're in Surrey Hills. So we've opened um, what we call the Four Pillars Laboratory in Surrey Hills. That's so a lab, basically, mm. which means it's a, it's a retail store. Um, it's a lab where I'm sitting at the moment, where the, where one of our skills is. So one of our five skills is now being we put it in the back of the bus and drove it up from Hillsville mm. in, the, in the Yarra up to Sydney. And it's um, you know we're making a uh, we're making gin here. We're running little classes. I mean, they're called master classes, but I hate that term because mm. it makes it makes it sound like I'm a master which I'm clearly not. If anyone's ever sat through one of my classes, they know that I'm not a, a master of anything other than my own um, belief in my own awesomeness. Um, <laughs> but, um, which is something you've been stuck classes. with your whole life, by the way. <laughs> what a burden, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then we've got a beautiful bar called Eileen's Bar, which is just named after the stills. So each of the stills is named after our mum, and Eileen is Matt's mum. Um, and Eileen's Bar is, a, is an incredible cocktail bar where you can come and have delicious drinks um, using all of the four pillars range you can have but you know you can also have a beer mm. and you can have a wine and you can have a jaffle or some anchovies or some cheese um, you know we're not we're not trying to tell you that if you don't want our fancy gin cocktail then you shouldn't be here you want to sit here and have a tin of furphy and um, while you watch your friend have a fancy martini then that's fine um, um, and it's a really beautiful bar I mean it's designed gorgeously Um you know, we, we were too far down the track when COVID hit to stop. Um, you know, we, we'd been developing this site for, you know, over six months. So, you know, it, it, we were lucky that we were able to open when we when we did. And, um, yeah, it's a great spot. So, I mean, if anyone wants to have a look at it, it's the Four Fillers Lab. So if they just want to go onto the Four Fillers Gin website or they just, you know, the Instagram machine or Facebook, you know, you, you'll be able to find it pretty easily, the Four Fillers Lab on the Crown Street. And we're right next to the Dolphins. So, you know, we're in a great little part mm, of Surrey Hills for the Dolphins. Yeah. The Dolphins next door, Bills is across the road. Um, you know, our table is just down the down the street. Um, we're right on Crown Street, next. You know, where the um, right near the the Adam Goods mural. So you know, we love Goodsy. So it's a, it's a really exciting part of town. And we're not, we're now starting to see just in the last couple of weeks, we're starting to see people coming back, which is great. You know, everyone's got to be you know, the, the COVID protocols have to be continued, but. Mm. Um, it's good to see people back out supporting hospitality venues. You, you, you need a whole lot of pizza boxes. Apparently, three pizza boxes equals social distancing, Stu, just in case you didn't know. Small, medium, large, or family size? <laughs> yeah, I asked that question as well. I look like medium to me <laughs> the, the first time I saw it. Now, by the way, I, I had a whole pile of questions my producer told me to, to ask. I haven't asked any of them. But I do think <laughs> we've, we have cut through and got – the, the core of what you've done in a spectacular way to create not only just a, a great Australian business, you've become an exporter and exporting is fantastic for the economy, fantastic for job creation. And I would never, ever have thought that you could have been of any use to the economy or anyone <laughs> in the economy when I taught you way back in uh, uh, Sydney Grammar School when you were 15, but you really surprised me. And it's a great <laughs> surprise to have you as good as you are today. <laughs> Thanks, Wits. I mean, if, no, no matter how bad I was at economics, I was worse as a fullback when you put me in that out of position <laughs> in, in 1985. Oh, but we won't go there. No, I know. That was one of my worst footballing coaching decisions ever. And the next year, what, you won the GPS 100 and yeah, what played yeah. what GPS 1s yeah. or 2s on the wing? Yeah, stick me on the wing, mate. That's where I was good. You know, I can run in a straight line. Yeah. <laughs> Catch and pass. Yeah, I also, I also think Mike Cady was a better coach than Peter Switzer. All right, <laughs> all right, buddy, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, thanks, Switzer. Really appreciate it. And that was Stu Gregor of Four Pillars. And now let's meet Luke Mangan of Luke's Kitchen and a whole lot more. So, Luke, as a consequence of this forced 
period where you had to rethink your business model, mm. how will it be different when we allegedly get back to normal? What will, what have you learned out of this that you'll take to the, the next business model, the post-pandemic business model? Well, I think we're doing it already at both restaurants. We've changed a lot where um, – well, let, let's put it this way. When we did uh, airline food and, and, and big catering foods, we always worked with big big companies that would be the labor cost to us because our biggest problem in restaurants and hotels is labor and rent, as you know. Yeah. Now, if you can't control them, you've got issues. And I think, you know, again, once JobKeeper finishes here for our industry, there you may see more restaurants potentially close. Um, so we've been working for, for years with people who produce our food on a, on a big scale. Um, well, that means for us, we're going to possibly be looking at using less labor in our kitchen and, and um, producing smaller menus. And that means less wastage, less labor. And uh, I think that's going to be a model of many restaurants to come. Mm. So th- does that mean, Luke, uh, and let me use the, the analogy of what I'm seeing in the fashion area, that, that a lot of young people might buy a couple of items to wear from H&M and dress it up mm. with something from Louis Vuitton and Chanel <laughs> or something like that. So it's where once upon a time it was either all H&M or, or Louis Vuitton, they're, they're kind of mixing and matching. Do you see that there'll be aspects of your restaurant that you, you, you won't have to do as labour-intensively and in the kitchen and still be able to produce something that people would say, I would never have been able to do that at home? 100%. 100%. doing it now. We are doing it now. We are, um, we've shortened up. You know, for example, the cocktail list, you know, but Pre, pre all this, we'd have three or four barmen at glass. Mm. We'd have two barmen at Luke's Kitchen. Now, we've shortened the cocktail list. We've simplified it. One barman, two barmen, if that makes sense. So it, it's because, it, you know, the amount of wastage we would have in restaurants, and I'm not just talking about it in general, you know, because we wanted big menus. We wanted big cocktail lists. We wanted 20 wines by the glass. Well, I think these days are gone. Mm. Um, because the restaurant business, the restaurant model, as you would know, and you've spoken to many people and you know many people in the industry, it's very hard to make a buck out of it. Mm. I've been lucky that I got income streams from cruise ships and aeroplanes and and books and products and things like that, although it stopped. Um, Mm. But, but, you know, I've been lucky that we were in a good position before all this happened. Luke... uh when you reflect upon your whole business experience, and I know you and I have talked about, you know, how you you got into the restaurant game, and I think for the sake of my uh, listeners who who don't know, mm. uh, I'd love you just to to explain how you ended up a being a chef, and b how you ended up becoming a celebrity chef, because I think it's all about. Uh, doing stuff you love, but secondly, yeah. you built a brand, and everybody in business who owns a business who'd like to be successful as you has to understand it's brand building that's critically important. Well, first, one thing I, I hate is the word celebrity chef because you pick up a newspaper now and everyone's a celebrity chef. So <laughs> and they're, all in, term, and they're all in trouble as well at the moment. <laughs> exactly right. That's right. But look, I, I got lucky, Peter, I think. And I think I, I got kicked out of school at 15. I really fell into a cooking apprenticeship in Melbourne with, with the great – Herman Schneider at Two Faces Restaurant in South Yarra, which back then in 1985 was one of the best restaurants in the world, or in Australia, I should say. Did my full apprenticeship there, moved to London, uh, worked in a three-star Michelin under a restaurant called uh, The Waterside Inn under Michelle Rue, famous chef, three years there, and came back to Sydney, and came back to Melbourne, and not many things went right for me at this time. I was about 24 or 25, and um, every restaurant, I was a second chef, sous chef position, uh, and I was quite young for that role, but every restaurant I, I worked in went broke and they all closed down. So so three restaurants in a row in Melbourne that I'd worked in all went broke. And I thought, God, I, I've stuffed up. I don't know what I'm going to do because I couldn't have done anything at the park from cooking. I didn't really start enjoying cooking until I got to London because an apprenticeship back then was washing pots and pans, peeling potatoes and peeling onions. But w- once I started to enjoy it, I, I got this job offer from 
who you would know or know of, Mr. John, uh, Justin Hem's father. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was a, a, his first foray into um, uh, the hotel restaurant business, pubs. And they bought Hotel CBD. He asked me to be the head chef of CBD at 24. And that I did. And, and I just was at the right place at the right time doing the right food. Um, and we just became very successful overnight in that whole package of what he did mm. with the pub and the bar downstairs and, 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 and sort of the lounge bar upstairs at CBD. And the rest, I stayed there for four years and, and working with John was incredible. He was an incredible businessman and very smart. I learned a lot from him mm. um, in, in the restaurant business model sense. I never built worked to build a brand. I think it just came about. I opened a restaurant in... Uh, 1999 called Salt just before <laughs> no, we, along with Rockpool Tetsuya's and, and perhaps Otto we were the hottest restaurants in Sydney if not Australia and we got all that trade you know the, the, the Americans coming over for the Olympics and all that and we, we just killed it and, and, and Salt really hit not just the map on Australia but really hit an international map and I became very lucky there again but then you know, as, as a young cocky chef I was, I expanded. I opened up Bistro Lulu and a place in North Bondi, and I had about four or five restaurants, uh, and things got tight. I, I nearly went broke after five years of that um, and, and got rid of Salt, got rid of Lulu, and got rid of Moorish, uh, and, and I was just so close from, from being broke. But just before all that happened, I, I, I got lucky with Hilton uh, and... and they came to me and 15 years ago, uh, yesterday, um, it was Glass's 15th birthday. Yeah. But, but Luke, your luck is interesting because, you know, part of your luck at Salt was that Richard Branson liked what he, he had at your restaurant one night. And That's right. Did that partly explain your link to Virgin? Exactly right. Four guys came in for dinner in, in, in the early 2000s. And uh, we had an open kitchen, and the waiter came up and said, oh, this table wants to speak to you. And I thought, oh, God, this is, could be a problem. But anyway, I went out and chatted, and, and they asked if I'd join. And I said, oh, you'd be great. And we had a glass of wine. And they said, uh, I said, well, where do you work? And they go, oh, Virgin. And I go, okay. And great. And then they said, their boss was coming out in a month's time. And I go, oh, okay, great, great. And they said, uh, we'd love him to come and join, uh, come, come into the restaurant. And I said, great, great. And who's your boss? And they go, it's not Richard Branson, is it? And I thought, yeah. So, okay. And I thought, I'd never hear back of this. About a month later, I got a phone call uh, on the mobile. Uh, Luke, I said, yes, it's 11 o'clock on a Friday. I'll never forget it. Uh, Luke, I said, yeah, it's uh, uh, Richard Branson here. And I'm thinking, seriously. Like, I'm looking around the room as yeah. I start and thinking, they're taking the mickey out of me. But it was Richard, and he said, look, he wanted a table for lunch. Uh, and I said, look, Richard, you know, salt, we're, we're, we're jam puff, but I do have a restaurant in Bondi called Moorish. Why don't you head down there and, and uh, I'll set you up on the balcony, blah, blah, blah. Did that. And then just before he hung up, he said, um, oh, will you be there? And I said, I'll come for a quick drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, it was, you know, 11 o'clock, so 12 o'clock, I got salt, the full restaurant, I got Moorish with full. So I ran down and met him, had a drink, blah, blah, blah. Great time. And left, left him and the family, there were table at 10. I went back to Salt. Now, Friday night, 7.30 at Salt, obviously, was full. Chocolate box. My mobile rings again. Luke, it's Richard. I thought, bloody hell, he's got food poisoning or something happened. <laughs> I, I thought the word. And he goes, um, we had a great lunch. I really want to bring Joan, my wife, to Salt for dinner. I said, great. When do you want to come? And he goes, look, we're only in the holiday, holiday in around the corner. In about 10, 15 minutes, is that all right? And I said, oh, God, <laughs> we had We had no time. I said, okay, great. We'll see you soon. Hung up. Obviously, you find tables, you make tables available. And that particular night, we did. And Richard and Joan came in, and the whole restaurant stopped. And uh, he just asked me to cook for him, and that was great. And asked me for a drink afterwards. Went out. He said, look, we're flying Virgin and landing out here uh, in about six to 12 months. I want you to come to my island in the Caribbean to discuss a few things. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, here I am, mate, at 31. I'm thinking, this billionaire guy's asking me to his island. <laughs> and I thought nothing would happen. But about a few weeks later, he's second in charge rang me. Uh, he flew me and four of my chefs first, first class to Necker Island in the Caribbean. He wanted me to, uh, there was a note on the bed when I arrived at midnight and said, you know, let's have breakfast in the morning. So I'm having breakfast with Richard. And he said to me, you know what, I wanted you to cook a few meals for me and a few friends, but 
I just want you to enjoy the island. Mm. We cooked one meal for him. That was it. And the rest, we played tennis, uh, water skied. I learned how to uh, kite ski and everything like that. It was quite incredible. And that's how the relationship started. It was funny how we did, did business, I guess. So, Luke, a lot of people would be wondering, how does a, sh- a chef who was lucky to, to train under the right people eventually mm. picks up the business skills and you, know, you, you, you did expand rapidly, you, you worked out it was you know, not going to head in the right direction. I, I'd love you to tell me mm. why it wasn't working. But secondly, how did you eventually pick up the business um, savvy, savviness to do what you did before the, the pandemic, have the cruise lines, have the, yeah. the, the, the big uh, classy restaurants. And you have also opened up restaurants overseas as well, haven't you, in your, in your time? Yeah. yeah. Well, look, to answer your question, I think by nearly going broke when I had Salt Bistro Lulu and Moorish made me realise this business is tough. Mm. And even to have one restaurant was hard enough to make a quid. So I thought, I've got to get out there. I've got to, so I started doing cookbooks. So I started doing Today Show on Channel 9 um, and doing more TV, getting the brand out there. Mm. Um, and you know me, I'm a, I'm pretty sort of relaxed sort of guy. Uh, how the cruise ships happened, we, we ran a, a program called Appetite for Excellence, which is a sh- uh, to encourage young people in our industry. And a gentleman came up to me on one awards night and said to me, what a great night, blah, blah, blah. And I'd had a few drinks. And, and I said, oh, great. You know, thanks for coming. I go, by the way, what do you do and why are you here? He goes, oh, one of the sponsors in there. I said, oh, great. I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I, I'm the vice president of, of P&O Cruise Ships. And I stupidly, well, after a few drinks, I said, well, we should have a restaurant on one of your ships one day. And uh, he looked at me, and uh, about two weeks later, I got a call from this guy, Sturm on Mermil. He calls me. So, you know, I met you at the awards and we had a chat and, and I could barely remember the conversation we'd had. And he said, you know, can we have lunch? I'd like to talk about having restaurants on the cruise ships. And at that time, <laughs> I, I seriously didn't think much about it. But we had lunch. And then I thought, do I want to be involved with P&O, that brand? Because yeah. they'd had a lot of problems. Yeah. And, and cruise ship food and things like that. But this Stuart gentleman, who's a lovely guy, my partner now for 15 years in these, in these restaurants, um, assured me that they wanted change and they were going to change it. And everything I asked for, separate kitchens, separate teams, different produce from the rest of the ships, he gave me, guaranteed to me, and has stuck to his word to this day. And that's what's been so made them restaurants so successful. Mm. It seems to me, Luke, as you reflect upon you know, your life story, that the, the words, a few drinks – pops up on many occasions and it hasn't been to your disadvantage. No, exactly right. I mean, I like a wine. I'm in the business. Um, uh, you know, I think I think doing a, a business deal or, a, or you know, if I get asked to do something, a TV commercial, whatever, I always like to go out for a lunch or something, to, yeah. and this is honest, and, and, and because I want that person to be in a relaxed frame of mind and I feel that I'm in a relaxed frame of mind rather than sitting in a bloody boardroom or a meeting room or, or whatever it may be, and and having that discussion uh, over a meal and a glass of wine. And mm. I think I get the best results from it, personally. Luke, one other theme that comes up all the time, that when you encounter one kind of challenge, you then respond and do things differently. You talked about you, you started to write books, you, mm. you, you've got a television show, do these mm. things just come through the door or do you position yourself to get people? Clearly, in the case of P&O, with, via drinking, you come up with a really good yeah. idea. That was your <laughs> initiative. But the other things, do, do you have to say to yourself, okay, this is not working as well as I, I wanted to do. What else can I do? And, and I'm kind of thinking out of this pandemic, you may well come up with something new as well because you know your close link to Virgin, you know, could be affected by the fact that there are now new owners there. What, what are you currently thinking about in terms of a new an innovation that could keep this Mangan brand of yours alive and kicking? Well, look, I think I, I really believe cruise ships will come back, mm. and when they come back, they'll be they'll be uh, you know as good as they were. I really believe that, so I, I don't see a problem there. The airline business, who knows what's going to happen there, as you said. Um, for me at the moment, in, in after this sort of two, three months of downtime that we've all had, I've done a lot of thinking. And I, as you know, I had 23 restaurants at our peak. And thankfully, 
uh, sold my Asian restaurants in June 18 to my business partner. Um, so I was very lucky at that time to get out of that. For me at the moment, less is more, Peter. I really want to focus on our Luke's Kitchen brand and what we're doing there and, and keep focusing on glass. And I don't see myself having 5, 10, 15 restaurants anymore, to be honest. Concentrate on the two great things we have and just keep doing them well and keeping the brand out there is, is my goal. Luke, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, as I always, you know, always enjoy. Uh, you're great in sharing your your observations, and I know you're very happy to help others coming along who aspire to be as good as it, and even even better than the great Luke uh, Mangan. Thanks for coming on the show. I look forward to having a wine soon, Pete. <laughs> so do I, mate. As soon as possible. Thanks, mate. That was Luke Mangan, and now we meet Ronnie Khan, the founder of Oz Harvest. All right, now, now, Ronnie, please, for those people who have been you know, living on planet Mars who don't know anything about Oz Harvest, explain to us what your business does and where you got the idea for it from. Okay, well, thanks so much for asking. Oz Harvest really does many things, but the idea for Oz Harvest came because I was in the event business, kept seeing fabulous food going to waste and kept creating fabulous food to go to waste until I realized that that was insane, all this beautiful food, and thought, what if we could collect that food and deliver it to hungry people? Because I knew that there must be hungry people. Um, And I guess what started as an idea 15 years ago has not been such a bad idea because we've delivered almost 140 million meals from good food that would otherwise go to waste and fed it to vulnerable people. So, Ronnie, that's a, that, that's a fantastic number of meals. Can you just explain where you get the food from? Sure. So we collect food from anywhere in the food supply chain. So from delis and takeaways and boardrooms and caterers, hotels, airlines, um, farmers, manufacturers, producers. So anywhere within the food supply chain, unfortunately, what we now know is that there's oversupply overproduce. I mean, if you think about a, a, you know, a boardroom meeting you guys might have, you might have a beautiful plate of sandwiches and you thought there were going to be 10 people, but in Mm -hmm. fact, only four board members pitched. That means there were a whole bunch of sandwiches left over. If you weren't going to take them out into the foyer for everyone else to eat, but there was no one there that day, you'd call us harvest, we'd come around and collect those. Do you collect any food or is it a focus more on fresh food that doesn't perish so quickly? No, we collect any food. We were the first people to collect perishable fresh food, so that kind of food, sandwiches or food from a hotel or food left over from an event, but we collect fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, we collect dry goods, we collect we collect anything and everything mm. that is still fit for consumption in perfectly good condition. No. And if you would continue eating it and I would continue eating it, then we could put it on the table of someone mm. else. Ronnie, you, you had regulations stopping you in the early days, didn't you? Yes. We had the laws changed in 2005 in New South Wales, 2008 in the AC2, 2009 in Queensland and South Australia – and the rest of the states have followed suit, to allow good food to be given away for free without fear of liability because Mm. that was a challenge and an obstacle in the beginning. Lots of people said, yes, they give us food, but none of the major big businesses because they're very worried about litigation. And so we we removed that issue. No, I remember interviewing you when you were really small, a couple of trucks and whatever. But You certainly did. I think when I only had one truck, you were one of the first people to interview. Yeah, and I, I, I had that feeling you were going to make a big fist of it because in particular, I think you got some very big organisations to back you in those early days. I might be wrong, but I think Macquarie might have been one of those. Is, is that my, 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 my recollections right? Absolutely. They were my core seed funder, the first people to give me money. They were the first people I went to to ask for money. They gave me 50K seed funding, which allowed us to hire a driver, hire a first person, 
and absolutely get the business going. And they continued funding me for 10 years. Now, Ronnie, yeah. I, I know that, you know, and I say this with a great respect, that you are a very pushy woman and that's why this business has <laughs> succeeded. But in those early days, did, did you get a lot of pushback because you were a woman in a very much a man's world? You know, I think because, so first of all, it's a very valid question. I think that people managed to transcend what who I was, what my physical form was, because what my offering was was so unique. Quite honestly, Peter, you and Paul, I, I'm sure all of you at some point heard when you were growing up, eat your food because there's someone starving somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So in fact, I didn't have to teach anyone about not wasting food. Their parents, their grannies, their mothers, their aunts, their uncles, someone had done it for me. So, in fact, the fact that I'd run my own business before also did help that I was a business person. Mm. Yes, I say business person over a, a businesswoman. So I think, I think I've been particularly fortunate in that I haven't had that many, and I, I, I know that this is unique as a woman, that I haven't had that many obstacles before me because I forged ahead regardless. And yes, I am pushy. You're probably right. Mm. But in a, I would hope it's in a positive way and it, in order to serve the, the good of humankind. Well, I've always been afraid of that tough South African wo woman called Ronnie Khan. And, <laughs> and it's, I think a lot of other people have as well. And that's why I say yes to you rather than no. But along exactly. the way... Exactly. <laughs> wow. That's right. So along the way, Ronnie, um, obviously leadership's been really important because you've gone from a small business to a you know, very yeah. big business. What have you yeah. learned about being a woman in the role of leadership? So I have learned an enormous amount. And there's no doubt that being a woman, what I do bring and what I think female leadership brings is that combination of head and heart. And that's really what I think leadership is all about. It's not just about one or the other. I think that authentic leadership comes from tapping into your own values and tapping into the ability to get others to see that and understand that. And I think that actually probably male leaders have had a, a challenge in, in the stereotype of not being able to tap into their values and use their head and heart. Luckily, that has changed significantly over the years, but still probably not enough. Ronnie, uh, what you've done has been fantastic, and a lot of people would like to you know, assist or help you do it. What are the ways in which people can uh, help Oz Harvest do their fantastic work? So thank you. Thank you so much for asking, because there are many ways. So there are three things we need. We need time, we need food, and we need money. So some people don't have time, so they could support by donating money. You know, when I hear people say, oh, I don't want to give money, you know, organizations might not use money well. We're incredibly transparent. Every dollar allows us to deliver two meals to people in need. So quite honestly, money is a huge thing. Food, if, you, if, if people did want to purchase or pr provide us with tinned food or connect us with businesses that we might not already be connecting food from, that is very useful. And what we talk about with time is we always need volunteers. I have over 2,000 volunteers and Oz Harvest could not function without that extra extraordinary support. Yeah. So right now, particularly because of the bushfires, particularly because of coronavirus. The truth is that cash works really well and every dollar allows us to deliver two more meals. It allows us to educate us, you know, the citizens of our country on how to manage food, how to value food better. But we need food and we need time as well. And the best way to contact you is? OzHarvest.org. That is the easiest. Go to our website, osharvest.org, and there's, all of those ways are iterated on the website. You can give time, you can give love, or you can give um, food. 
All right. Now, Ron, yep. Ronnie, we Australians always love adopting people from overseas who are very successful. <laughs> and, and you are my favourite South, Aust- South African Australian. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for the opportunity of sharing. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>